Ciao, Cafe Caraccia. This episode we're looking at some technology that arrived on the continent in the early 20th century and its implications for further exploration. And I'm going to catch up on a few medical issues that have been receiving mention without explanation. First, photography. Arriving in Antarctica aboard the Southern Cross played an increasingly important role in expeditions through the 20th century and is now, after memoirs about how the continent changed the author spiritually, the second biggest Antarctic export. The capacity to catch the alien landscapes and unusual wildlife of the southern continent relatively quickly and easily saw cameras quickly pass from the hands of whoever didn't break everything they touched to dedicated professional photographers, or camera artists, in one instance. Expedition backers and leaders used the resulting images to boost the impact of their presentations to audiences at home and to justify their past and future efforts in the South. Photography, with its ease of operation and apparently objective perspective, quickly overtook drawing and painting both as a traveller's means to capture their experiences and as a scientist's means to illustrate their reports. Scientific drawing, once an essential skill for any researcher, was not even taught as an elective in my time as an undergraduate. The skills are kept alive by dedicated natural history and taxonomic artists, but that which experts like Kate Nolan and Carolyn Esbenshard make their living from was once a skill set shared by the bulk of natural history investigators. Even a git of the calibre of Karsten Borkrevink could illustrate his work in a manner I envy, though not enough to put any time or energy into emulating it. The cameras first taken south comprised a heavy wooden box and invariably required a similarly sturdy wooden tripod to hold the unit upright and still while the negatives were exposed to light. Negatives at the time comprised glass plates covered in an emulsion of light-sensitive silver salts. Louis Bernacki, physicist to expeditions under Borkrevink and Scott, used such equipment to take the first photographs of the Antarctic continent. Herbert Ponting, who considered himself a camera artist, sailed on the Terra Nova with Scott, becoming one of the first Antarcticans whose sole purpose in going south centred on photography. The marked contrast between Ponting's images and those of Scott, Bowers, Levick and others entrusted with cameras as part of Scott's second expedition demonstrates the operational difficulties presented by the cameras of the day. Ponting trained people to make the most of the opportunities and equipment on hand, but the many steps in the process of capturing an image in the early 20th century saw many dud exposures. Ponting's trained eye for composition and expert understanding of his medium make his images stand out and remain some of the most striking of the heroic era. Ponting often called on expedition members to spend long periods posed in the cold to generate compelling images, leading to the coining of a new verb describing standing still in the cold while a photographer faffs about. To pont. Herbert Ponting's efforts were equalled, or to my tastes, bettered by those of Australian postcard photographer Frank Hurley. Hurley first went south with Douglas Mawson, but his best-known Antarctic work arose from his time with Ernest Shackleton's Imperial Transantarctic Expedition, where he documented the pack ice-mediated destruction of the Endurance and the subsequent survival of the 28 resulting castaways. Hurley made several return visits to the Endurance as she sank, rescuing more exposed glass negatives than he could expect the remaining boats to carry. He forced himself to pick the best images and smash the plates of many more, thereby staunching the temptation to keep returning to the cache. 
while we have the best of his efforts prior to the loss of the endurance, the shards of likely stunning images lie in the benthos somewhere in the Weddell Sea. He carried enough unexposed plates to complete the photographic record of the journey to Elephant Island and the survival of the 22 men who remained there while Shackleton took a crew of six on the most difficult boat journey imaginable. But more on that in an episode dedicated to the ITAE. Plastic film was first used as a photographic medium in the 1880s, but the expense of plastic relative to glass at the time and the tendency of early plastic films to distort as they aged thereby ruining any images captured, saw glass negatives hold their place in the photographic market for several more decades. The major advantage of plastic film over glass plates to a traveller is the weight. Hundreds of images can be captured on photographic film at a fraction of the weight and bulk of the equivalent glass negatives. As plastics technology improved the durability of the medium and mass manufacture decreased the cost, film cameras took over from glass plate units. In Antarctic conditions though, film can become brittle and before my foray to the ice, I received sound advice from wildlife photographer Kim Westerskov to keep my cameras inside my parka to prevent the cold from adversely affecting the film. Another excellent pointer from Dr Westerskov was that I should never open a camera to change out a film or lens until the temperature of the equipment equalised with that of its surroundings. A cold camera will, when brought into a warm, humid space, act as a nucleus for the formation of condensation, water in the air forming droplets over all exposed surfaces. If those exposed surfaces include the inner workings of the camera or the inner faces of your lenses, you've done yourself a potentially expensive disservice. Giving the equipment time to reach equilibrium, preferably slowly, prevents you getting condensation through the internal mechanical and electronic components. Digital cameras removed any concerns about the weight or durability of negative stock, but their reliance on batteries brought with it its own drawbacks for use in cold conditions. The chemical reactions by which batteries release electrical potential slow down substantially at very low, by human standards, temperatures. The usable charge available in camera batteries at temperate temperatures can drop to almost nothing if the camera's internal temperature is allowed to reach equilibrium with its Antarctic surroundings. Again, Keeping the camera body warm by carrying it inside your parka will help prevent the problem, but long exposures or attempts at time-lapse sequences may require insulation and hand warmers to stave off the worst effects of the cold. Hand warmers are pocket-sized parcels of chemicals and come in two common forms. Iron-oxygen hand warmers provide plenty of heat for several hours, but only offer a single use. Hypersaturated salt crystal hand warmers provide less intense heat for a shorter period, but can be recharged by placing them in boiling water, if you have the resources available to boil water for anything other than your immediate food and drink requirements. Digital cameras also removed a lot of user uncertainty about exposure and contrast. The ability to review results immediately, or within hours if the camera lacks a viewing screen or if you've turned it off to conserve what battery life you're getting in the cold, negates the former necessity to understand how light behaves under the high albedo conditions prevalent in Antarctica. Obviously that's interesting stuff to know about, and anyone kicking off with that knowledge under their belt will be ahead of the curve, but digital cameras offer scope for trial and error based success at a fast pace and at a low cost that chemical photography could never match. Underwater photography in Antarctica combines all the already mentioned problems with the additional suite of concerns inherent to taking complex machinery and electronics into a saltwater environment.
O-rings. The rubber or silicon gaskets used to make an underwater camera watertight can become brittle in the cold and so require gentle handling. In addition to the condensation warnings already noted for all cameras when taken from cold, dry, outdoor conditions to warm, moist, indoor conditions, Kim Westerskov also advised me never to wash my underwater cameras in fresh water immediately after diving, as I would do in temperate or tropical conditions. A single droplet of fresh water left on an o-ring or an accessory port can, when immersed in sub-zero seawater, snap freeze and cause mechanical displacement sufficient to push an o-ring out of the way, leading to the flooding of the camera body or housing. Far better to risk some salt crystal ingress than to risk losing the whole rig. Another piece of sage advice I received long before heading south was to rig for redundancy. The underwater photographers I looked to for advice in my teen years as I was starting into that activity unanimously encouraged me to think of flooding a camera as a matter of when, not a matter of if. The expense and difficulty of getting to Antarctica means you really don't want to risk anything you find important to a single point of failure, so if photography is one of your key outcomes, go prepared with backup photographic systems. It took every spare cent I came across in the year leading up to my second trip to Ross Island, but I managed to buy enough camera gear to offer some redundancy, and this paid off when my Nakonis 5 flooded on about my tenth dive of that season. A flooded underwater camera is an amphibious Greek tragedy, but the mental framework and advice afforded by my photographic mentors helped me deal with the disappointment and be ready to go with my backup system the next time I finished my project tasks under the ice with air and energy to spare. Given the satisfaction that my Nikonis cameras gave me in the images I shot on that particular trip, I think I could have flooded the lot under the ice and still come away smiling. With digital camera systems taking over, it's almost seven years since I ran a film through them, so that's something of a moot point now. Another diver working at the site that season was using a digital camera in a waterproof housing for their post-project task recreations under the sea ice. While the water is only minus two degrees Celsius, which compares favourably with some of the local air temperatures, the thermal capacity of water is far higher than that of air and can sap heat away so quickly and comprehensively it's hard not to feel that the water possesses agency and is actively trying to make everything one low temperature. The little digital camera often ran out of puff long before the diver. Heat packs to the rescue, or so it was thought. But iron-oxygen heat packs only come with the iron part of the chemical process pre-packaged. Once sealed in the camera housing, the heat pack quickly used up the small reservoir of available oxygen and the exothermic process came to a halt. The camera got chilled to the point it stopped working and the hot pack only revived when brought back to the surface and released from the airtight housing. You win again, chemistry. With digital cameras becoming smaller and lighter and radio-controlled helicopter drones becoming increasingly capable even as their price continues to fall, low-cost aerial photography in Antarctica is really taking off and the results are often spectacular. Also new on the scene at the end of the 19th century, but nothing I'm going to have anything much personal to contribute on because I only harnessed up to haul a sledge for long enough to have some idea of how miserable it might be. Sledges played an increasingly large role in expeditions recounted in recent episodes, with more in the offing. In use in the Arctic for centuries before anyone thought of heading south in search of a possible continent, Sledges spread a load across long, wooden runners, which act as skis, allowing heavy cargoes to be dragged along for minimum effort. During his Arctic expeditions, 
Fritjof Nansen adapted Inuit designs, setting the standard for long-distance sledges. In a light wooden sledge using tenon joints in the sub-assemblies and green hide, that's untanned leather for you posh people who don't make your own shoes, to lash the sub-assemblies together into a strong but flexible structure that can flow over the contours of small sestrugi. Sometimes metal edges are used on the wooden runners to protect them from damage. During the long Antarctic winter endured by the crew of the Belgica, Frederick Cook and Roald Amundsen made penguin ski shoes for their sledge runners after admiring the way the birds slid across the ice on their bellies and reported that these worked well. A well-built sledge can carry half a tonne of equipment and stores, but different expeditions use different approaches to pulling their sledges along. The Nansen design features a platform at the rear for a dog driver, but not everyone followed the Arctic standard of using dogs to do the hauling. Ponies and people have also been employed, but with ponies being catastrophically crap in polar conditions and dogs now banned from Antarctica, it's people, internal combustion engines or sail power hauling sledges about today. Snowmobiles and parakites offer handy horsepower options to take the human misery out of the hauling equation, but sometimes it's the allure of testing personal metal against the historical feats of personal heroes that draws people south and the opportunity to haul on foot or ski is the thing. Several heroic era teams fashioned sails for their sledges, and while never a hindrance, they never seem to be a huge help either. Certainly if you've got the time and resources to make a sail, it makes sense to make one, and to use it at any hint of a tailwind. Parasails, by providing a large, steerable sail surface, for little in the way of weight and infrastructure, have helped teams cross the continent very efficiently but some people just don't see such efforts as genuine because they lack the sincere misery usually attendant on foot slogging. The spirit of Sir Clements Markham lives on. A sledging team on skis can achieve about 25 kilometres a day, a maximum distance experienced by Scott's Terra Nova sledges and one they only met on a few occasions. At the same time, Amundsen's dog-powered sledging teams achieved an average of 37 kilometres a day with ideal conditions allowing distances of almost 100 kilometres a day. Generally, dog-hauled sledges can cover twice the distance of a sledge hauled by people, with 70 kilograms of load per dog. The one advantage I can see to using people to pull a sledge is that if you're harnessed into half a tonne of hard-to-move stuff, you're also tethered against falling to your death down a crevasse, so long as the sledge you're tethered to doesn't start moving under the jolt your fall puts on the traces, in which case, you might end up arriving at the thin end of a crevasse with half a tonne of sledge joining you shortly after. Several of the expeditions the series is set to cover feature brushes with death as unfortunate sledges break through a crust of snow and find themselves suspended by their harness. Loads of over half a tonne begin to overpower the mechanical efficiency offered by sledges and are extremely difficult to get moving, even on ideal surfaces. For heavier loads, or standard loads on sticky surfaces, a team may have to relay. The load is broken into fractions, usually halves, and each portion is taken forward in turn. For a load split in half, a team must cover three miles to account for one mile of progress, though the second mile can be easier going, as they head back for the second portion with no load on the sledge. Heartbreaking as relaying may be, it is at least progress, and if your survival relies on making some headway toward a depot or camp, relaying is only one of your many concerns. I mentioned ideal conditions earlier. The ease with which a sledge moves over a surface depends on several factors, 
If it's too cold, if it's too warm, if the snow is too deep, if there's not enough snow, if the sastrugi are high, if there's pressure ice, if there's glaciers, if there's sea ice cracks, the last thing you really want to be doing is trying to haul a heavy sledge along. Ideal conditions exist and have been experienced, but the range of temperatures and snow coverage constituting ideal sledging conditions are narrow. I think it was sledging he had in mind when aptly Cherry Garrard wrote that Polar exploration is at once the cleanest and most isolated way of having a bad time which has been devised. Depoting is another regular feature in sledging journeys. A slightly more involved form of relaying, depot journeys carry the supplies needed for a subsequent sledging party to carry past a given point. They drop the supplies off and head back to base, sometimes to get more supplies to make a depot further along in which case they have to use some of the already depoted material at the first drop-off to get home, which then requires another journey to replenish that depot, and it all gets really out of hand. Again, it's heartbreaking to put in multiple times the distance that you actually achieve, but before tracked vehicles and aircraft opened the continent up, that's what people had to do if they wanted to leave behind the coast and the large-scale cargo options available to ship-based travellers. Dehydration got a nod in episode 1, and scurvy occupied all of episode 19. But so far, hypothermia, frostbite and snow blindness haven't received much attention while they have received several mentions. Your hypothalamus is a lump of your brain that does a lot of hormone-regulated homeostasis, the maintenance of the body's status quo. It processes nerve signals from your alimentary canal and tells you when to feel hungry or sated. It also monitors your temperature and gives you pointers to help you avoid a 2 degree shift away from your optimal core operating temperature of 37 degrees Celsius. While the idea of a homunculus sitting up inside our heads giving out orders no longer holds much sway in medical circles, I like the idea of the hypothalamus as an ornery New Yorker. It's your hypothalamus that lets you know when you're in trouble in cold conditions. The first cab off the autonomic rank is a release of noradrenaline to restrict the outlying blood vessels. Your skin turns pale and cool to the touch as the blood supply is cut to a maintenance minimum, making the skin, fat and muscle form an insulating barrier to prevent heat loss in the core. Fingers feel stiff and numb as the limited blood still afforded them by the hypothalamus no longer supports optimal performance in the body's bid to protect the core systems. You can live without a few fingers but not without any of your major organs. Some organ systems, such as your kidneys and lungs, come in pairs and thereby carry some redundancy. But if you're losing one kidney to cold-mediated damage, it's pretty much a given that you're losing both, and the cold must be kept at bay. Cold damages us at a cellular level by distorting the structures formed by proteins. The physiological processes that do all the things that set us apart from our surroundings as living rather than non-living growth, organisation, homeostasis, adaptation, reproduction and metabolism are mediated by cellular machinery made up of proteins. Their primary structure is dictated by the information in our DNA as interpreted by our RNA, but their secondary, tertiary and quaternary structures are a matter of chemical bonds. Changes in temperature cause alterations in the energy with which electrons orbit the nucleus of an atom, so if you heat a substance up, it expands and if you cool it, it shrinks. With these changes occurring at the atomic level, any change in the temperature of a structure as complexly folded as a protein is dramatic. 
Suddenly, the chemical precursors the protein usually collects to push together into a new compound, or the compounds that it breaks apart, or whatever the protein does, no longer occurs. The receptor spaces in the protein are no longer the right size. The mechanism by which the protein does its work no longer operates. Whatever goes on, the reactions that the proteins previously catalyzed slow down. If the rate of that process is life-critical to the cell or the tissues made up by those cells, such as the delivery of oxygen by haemoglobin, cell death results. Large-scale cell death is tissue death. Large-scale tissue death leads to organ failure. Organ failure leads to organism death. The hypothalamus does its best to prevent even small-scale cell death, but it will throw your fingers under the bus if your heart or your brain are at any risk. Your body can't sustain a core temperature more than 2 degrees either side of the 37 degrees Celsius mileage may vary, that your cells are accustomed to. Hypothermia, lowered core temperature, can affect people operating in low temperature environments or any situation where the body experiences sustained thermal losses. The hypothalamus combats it as best it can, keeping the bulk of the blood near the body's core and issuing instructions to get inside and put more clothes on and turn the heat on and eat some warm food, you stupid monkey. But if those options aren't available, if the core temperature can't be raised or continues to fall, the body's systems begin to shut down. Cognitive function begins to slip. Limbs become uncoordinated. Muscles spasm. Consciousness begins to dim. Several people found dead of hypothermia discarded their clothing in the final moments of consciousness. Perhaps the hypothalamus giving an order akin to that chemical signal that tells a dying sea star to split up and send an arm in all directions. Do something, monkey. Try anything. Tearing off your clothes in a blizzard never helps, but the hypothalamus can't know that and seems to be giving the prospective corpse a last kicking to see if changing any available parameter improves the scenario. Hypothermia can be dealt with by gently warming a patient back to their accustomed core temperature, but it's better prevented. Prevention involves avoiding exposure to cold. Antarctica makes this difficult, making your equipment and your behaviour the critical factor. Frostbite is the freezing of body tissues. It follows the pattern of vasoconstriction laid down by the hypothalamus. The extremities already denied warming blood by the hypothalamus, lose heat to their surroundings faster than other body parts. Fingers, toes, nose, ears and cheeks are the body parts that experience ice crystal formation first, assuming you're not tackle out. To a patient, this is experienced as a gradual shift from extremely painful cold in the body part in question to no sensation, as the nerves and receptors previously reporting the cold and pain die off. Tissues can recover from the early stages of frostbite, sometimes called frost nip. The damaged tissues are gradually brought up to warm through immersion in progressively warmer water baths. But if you aren't in a fully equipped water bath aerarium, you can put your hands under the clothes of a willing friend and use their body heat to gently save your career at the piano. I've only ever experienced warming up my fingers after dry glove failures occasionally saw a dive ended prematurely by the extremely painful flooding that left my hand fully immersed in minus two degrees Celsius water. It hurt a lot to have my hand in that water for the minutes that it took to get back to the dive hut, clamber out of the water and dress out of my dive kit. But the half hour it took for that hand to come back up to body temperature was excruciating.
I'm told, by someone who's done the flooded dive glove thing and experienced frostnip, that recovering from frostnip is the worst of the two experiences, so I hope never to experience it. Frostbite, where the tissue freezes solid, causes both mechanical and chemical damage. As the water in the cells and the blood freezes, the resulting expansion and the jagged edges of the ice crystals break up cellular structures and decouple tissues and organs from their connective material. Proteins can be pushed past their thermal tolerance, forming shapes under the new temperature regime from which they cannot recover, their original function being lost permanently. The difference between frost nip and frost bite is my fingers went hard and I couldn't feel them, but we warmed them up and I lost some layers of skin as though I'd been badly burnt, but I can still play the piano, and my fingers went hard and I couldn't feel them and we had to cut them off and I cannot play the piano. Your outer layers of skin are already dead and can handle being frozen. Your endodermis is living skin and it and the muscles, tendons and bones beneath it cannot handle being frozen. Thawing frostbitten extremities or limbs carries the risk of potassium poisoning as the metallic ions freed from chemical servitude in cell structures and proteins by the freezing process can be released in sufficient quantities as the dead meat warms that the body effectively poisons itself to the point of organ failure and death. Slow warming under medical supervision can circumvent this problem, but then you're dealing with a dead thing attached to a live thing. Damaged blood vessels leak their fluids, causing massive edema in the affected parts. Gangrene will kill the unlucky limb owner, and so amputation is always indicated. Thawing the limb might help to show where to make the cut to minimise losses, but the cut is necessary to save the rest of the body. It's possible to die of hypothermia without running any risk of frostbite, but anywhere that frostbite poses a risk, hypothermia is also at play. Snow blindness doesn't require snow to occur. It's essentially sunburn to the cornea, and it can happen anywhere sufficient ultraviolet light reaches the eye. Welder's flash is exactly the same physiological condition, and can occur in the complete absence of snow. The reason it's prevalent in snow is the high albedo of the white surface that snow and ice present. Around 80% of the UV light that hits snow is reflected, so anyone operating for extended periods in snow is likely to experience corneal exposure to elevated levels of UV light. Even in cloudy conditions, this can cause damage to cells, as clouds don't block ultraviolet light as much as they do visible light and heat. As with sunburn, Acute damage is temporary and heals with time, but also, as with sunburn, it's extremely painful. A gritty sensation, akin to having sand thrown in your eyes, is a common theme among people discussing the experience of snow blindness, but additional comments about sensations akin to pepper in the eyes and glass shards piercing the eyes also crop up. The damaged tissue swells with fluid as the cells repair themselves, causing much of the pain, Sensitivity to additional light requires the sufferer to shield their eyes completely. Lying down with a cold compress over the eyelids is the medical prescription, but on the march in Antarctica, set against dwindling food and worsening weather, some sufferers have put on a blindfold and their harness and pulled along with their companions, stumbling in the darkness. Cocaine unguent, a common feature of heroic-era first aid kits, was often applied to the affected eyes, but painkillers are only a short-term salve for the problem. 
time and protection from further exposure are the only thing that helps in the long term. Prevention is a matter of cutting down exposure. Modern goggles and sunglasses block UV light effectively and snow blindness is rare among present-day Antarcticans. Older versions of protective eyewear were less effective at UV blocking and more prone to fogging than current models. Even with the best gear on offer, people sometimes find it necessary to remove their eyewear to see what they're doing. Altitude amplifies the problem, with UV exposure increasing by about 4% with each additional 1,000 feet above sea level, making mountaineers, often operating at height and in snow, particularly susceptible to UV damage. Inuit populations fashion eye covers of bone or hide with a thin slit over the irises. These block all but enough light to navigate by, and equivalents can be fashioned from gaffer tape or cardboard if your goggles fall down a crevasse or catch the attention of a kleptomaniac seal. Up next, an interview with Jacinda Amy, whom I met at Scott Base in 2005. This is Matt MacArthur at Scott Base for Radio Tuna, talking to Jacinda Amy. Jacinda, what's your role within Antarctica New Zealand? Um, I'm the field support coordinator, and it's a bit of a diverse role. I, um, the main thing I do is get field parties ready to, to head out into the field, so I issue them with with everything they'll need for camping. Um, so that's from a water bottle to a tent to crampons to walk on the ice and anything else in that sort of general camping area. And what has led you to this, this um, point in your career? Well, I've always wanted to winter over in Antarctica and um, not, not being a tradesperson, there's very few other opportunities. And um, yeah, I've, I've worked a, a lot in logistics for um, camping trips within New Zealand and particularly in the New Zealand Sub-Antarctic Islands and that's... And that's, um, yeah, given, given me a lot of familiarity with the gear and what, what's re required in these sort of more extreme environments. So you said you'll be wintering over, you're going to spend a whole, whole year here? A whole year and a little dark. bit more. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, we get all the sun, we get all the daylight now, and we make up for it in the winter when we don't get any at all. Okay. When, when does it get dark? Um, gosh, it's it's too far away for me to, me to be worrying about at this stage. But I think it's um, sort of April, May. I think May sort of yeah, starting to lose it. June, July. August, you see the sun again, so it's yeah, three months of dark. Wow. Yeah. And these field parties that you um, are doing the support for, their scientific investigations going out away from Scott Base for what weeks, months? Yeah, in the, in the summertime, there's a host of, of science that's done in Antarctica, and yeah, some parties um, operate from, from Scott Base itself, so they require less of um, this help from me, and, but there's others who yeah, will be camping in the field for extended times. I think we've got one party in at the moment who are in for two and a half months. And they take, they certainly take all their camping gear with them, and, but they will get resupplied with food during the season. And, yeah, can you contrast camping here and camping in New Zealand for our listeners? <laughs> Obviously well, there's one big factor and that's <laughs> that it's very cold. Yeah, uh, logistical planning down here takes a it takes a quantum quantum leap. You certainly wouldn't want to be backpacking the the gear you need to um, take out in Antarctica, 
Well, I guess one of the really obvious differences is, is the type of tents we use here. Um, what, what's quite common is, a, is to use a polar tent, which is sort of a bit like a, a bit like a teepee, and um, they're very, very strong and can um, withstand, yeah, really, really strong winds. And they they're designed to be pitched in the in the in the snow, and they're designed to be quite warm. They've got a nice, cosy inner tent. Um, and uh, they're held down. They've got a big flap around the outside, which you sh can shovel snow onto to hold, help hold the hold the tent down. And obviously, uh, guy wires as as well. And uh, um, pegs are, are hit into the snow, and, and the wires tied on against against those. And everything that they carry into the field gets carried out. And I've noticed the the red buckets around the place. They're actually bringing back any waste that they generate, which is a, another interesting aspect of living down here. Just nothing gets left behind. Yep, we don't want to leave anything out there, so all, all, all waste, um, including human waste, is, is brought back. So, yeah, that, that's a little bit of a bit of a trick when you're in Antarctica. <laughs> so all, all this, all this um, human solid waste comes back in, in buckets that are sealed up, and um, they're, they're actually sent back to New Zealand for disposal. Um, and the urine and grey water that's created from you know washing your dishes and brushing your teeth. That's all brought back to Scott Base, where it has to be defrosted, and we include we, we tip it down the drain and into our um, our really really efficient um, effluent disposal system here. You mentioned work on the subantarctic islands. Which of those have you visited? Well, I've been very very lucky, and I've visited all of the New Zealand subantarctic islands, and also Macquarie Island, which is owned by the Australians because we didn't want it. <laughs> so yeah, I've been very, really lucky to, to, to do lots of camping on lots of wonderful islands. Yeah. And did you have a similar role on those trips? Um, it's sort of a, a bit of a different scale. Down, down here there's an awful lot of science parties going out and bec because we have to fly people onto the continent and they stage from here and, and obviously um, carrying camping, all, all the camping equipment you need backwards and forwards in the planes is very costly. We tend to keep a stock of gear here and then um, get people outfitted and send them out into the field so they don't need to fly all the, the tents and specialist clothing backwards and forwards. Whereas um, most of the sub-Antarctic trips were, were serviced by ships and they're much, much smaller, often shorter term projects so we are able to put all the stuff aboard a, aboard a ship and we do all our own logistical planning and um, yeah and I'm usually involved in the in the field work as well as um, organising the event. And what sort of field work were you, were you doing on the Southern Antarctic Islands? Oh I've had a pretty good look around there too and um, I've sort of worked mostly with albatross and penguins and sea lions here on, on different, different programs at different times. Um, I'd also like to talk to you about your research on albatross that you're carrying out at, is it the University of Otago in Dunedin? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm in the write-up phase for, for a master's degree and, yeah, well, I did some research on the light-mantled sooty albatross on Macquarie Island. It's an albatross we have on our New Zealand islands and I've worked with a lot of albatross and I think it's the most beautiful one by far. <laughs> and so it was a particular thrill to be able to um, yeah, to, to, to study the, this, this bird. They really, they really um, 
really typify the, the New Zealand Southern Tartu. They're, they're very, very special birds. And what did your research on this species focus on? Uh, probably the main thing, the real fund it, was to um, put satellite transmitters on the birds and see where they, where they go to. Um, they come to the islands to, to breed like most of the wildlife you find on the islands it isn't about they're not land animals at all they're creatures of the sea and they only have to land there to to breed and lay their eggs and raise their chicks so and that's what these birds do on Macquarie Island so um, while they're there on their nest I would grab them and put a transmitter on and see where they where they go to feed their chicks and these um, these birds are quite phenomenal. They um, nest in the sub-Antarctic and yet they fly all the way down to the pack ice of Antarctica to find a meal for their chicks. This was quite a quite a good effort. And um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so they go all the way down to the pack ice to find a meal for their chicken and fly all the way back, a round trip of um, close on 3,000 kilometres. <laughs> and they can do that in um, three days. And I was just thinking that having visited all of those islands and now working in Antarctica, you've probably seen most of the penguin species that exist. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was really lucky to go out to Cape Crozier the, the other day and meet my first Dilly penguins and my first emperor penguins and that was really, really special. And yeah, well, I was thinking about that, I, th I was thinking I, I think there's three penguins I haven't met yet. So, <laughs> so that's pretty cool, it's not that I'm a penguin ticker, but, um, <laughs> but just, just the way it's, it's worked out really. Well, there's probably yeah. not many people around the world that could say that. It's like some people make it a, a, a bit of a quest. I haven't made it a quest, but it is it is really quite delightful to have been able to see them oh. see them all. Yeah. This being a, a radio program, our listeners can't actually see you leaning into the microphone to express the fact that you're not a twitcher. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Quite eager to let the world. I'm, I'm not a twitcher, honestly. No. Oh no. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. You have a call on one eight five. Well, I've been speaking to Jacinda Amy at Scott Base, the Logistics Manager and Field Support Officer for 2005-2006. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Congratulations to Jackie and Gray, who each won copies of Below the Convergence, one of my favourite books about early Antarctic exploration, for correctly identifying that the cure for bacon thing was the best pun I've ever come up with, and bonus points to Gray for pointing out that it wasn't actually a pun. I don't know what it was. Waggish badinage is fun to say, but I think you need two people for that. Take care and appreciate your coffee. Bernie's trapped in a photograph of midwinter fever. He smiles while his friends share a laugh A quiet achiever There's not much for conversation And the last to complain 
What do I really know? It's ninety-five years away. I wish I could be there with dry clothes and the hot cups of tea. Disappoint me Conflicting accounts The doctor and the poet From one the worst journey in the world From the other you'd never know it And you with no flag to your name So my sister Left half a world away Sing for the unsung Cry for them when you know they can't feel it Carry them close to your heart Sing for them someday someone might